Right. Um... Welcome everyone, and thank you for making time to join us this evening for a very timely discussion. I'm Grace Ho from The Straits Times, and I'd like to go through some house rules before we begin. Um, we seek your cooperation to ensure that there's no intermingling between the tables during the program proper, and that you keep your mask on at all times, um, except when eating or drinking. Before we begin tonight's discussion, may I invite Mr. Ansgar Graf, Director of the Media Programme Asia of the Conrad Adenauer Stiftung, to deliver his welcome remarks. Mr. Graf, please. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, everybody. If you are turning 25, you have to celebrate your birthday. Most of us remember their own 25th birthday with a big party. But that's complicated during these pandemic days or, to be more precise, during these pandemic years. Nevertheless, we, the media program Asia of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, have found a way to throw a very special birthday celebration with you as our guests. Good evening and thank you for coming. A warm welcome furthermore to our participants and on our Facebook and YouTube live streams outside of Singapore, in other Asian countries, also in Europe, in uh, Germany. Even a friend from the United States told me he would switch in he has to get very early up since in the United States now it's 5 a.m. in the morning. But good, good if we have also him with us. Thank you all for how to say it in this felt in this field correctly for mouse clicking in. You will at the at the screens have the possibility to put your questions on our debaters in the Q&A part, like our guests here in the Shangri-La Hotel in Singapore. Back to the audience here in the room, my very special welcome goes to the German ambassador, my ambassador, Norbert Riedel, who is so friendly to give us some welcome remarks. Thanks for being with us, Mr. Riedel. There are other ambassadors in the room as well, Ivona Piorkov, sorry, from the European Union, Peter Guschelbauer from Austria, and Fabrice Fillier from Switzerland and even more diplomats. Good evening, good afternoon to all of you. Not sure whether there haven't been at least moments at the General Assemblies at the United, States, at the United Nations with fewer ambassadors in the room as we have here now. Thank you all for coming. And we are honored to have Mr. Charles Chong with us, former Deputy Speaker of the Singaporean Parliament and Gerald Giam, a member of parliament, of the current uh, parliament in Singapore. Thank you all for coming. Particularly, I welcome Pre Professor Kishore Mahbubani, one of our tonight's debaters, former ambassador to the United Nations and twi twice 
as a president, a chairman uh, of the Security Council of the United Nations. He is one of the first authors and scientists who has described and analyzed in his books the rise of Asia and the emerging role and power of China uh, in this uh, globalized world. My, my, uh, I read his book, The Asian Century, 10 years ago. I was fascinated. And his most current book is asking, has China won? I'm doubting that I, as a child of Western democracy and enlightenment, will like the answer that Mr. Mahbubani is insinuating in his book, but how poor would a discussion be with positions that everybody can not to? Therefore, thanks for being with us, Professor Mahbubani. Stefan Aust is our second debater, and he is with us, but differently from that, what we have planned only about one week ago when we sent out the invitation. He's not in this room, but in Germany. Good morning to Blankenese, Hamburg Blankenese. Um, this, is, this is part of Hamburg and seen from Singapore. It's in a broader sense, it's also close to Berlin. Then our slide still fits. Um, Stefan Aust um, wanted to come. He would like to, to fly in, but due to the dramatically um, rising COVID infection rate in Germany, uh, he has decided on the strong advice of his physician not to take the risk of a long flight starting from an overcrowded airport. And although I regret deeply that he is not here amongst, amongst us, I think the decision is completely understandable. Safety first, health first, and therefore, good morning to Germany. Stefan Aust, great to have you with us. And I know you are sitting together with Adrian Geiges. The two of you have published a best-selling book about President Xi Jinping. Welcome to both of you. Stefan Aust, former long-standing editor-in-chief of the worldwide renowned magazine Spiegel and meanwhile publisher of the German daily Die Welt, a wonderful newspaper. I can say that since I worked for this newspaper for more than 20 years. Stefan Aust is a living brand in Germany and beyond. He's a journalist who was very often around when history happened. He was close to Rudi Dutschke when the leader of the German student revolution started his anti-authoritarian rebellion in 1968, and he was around when there was the attempted assassination of Dutschke. Aust knew very well Ulrike Meinhof, a left-wing journalist who turned into a terrorist, and he rescued her children from being kidnapped and sent to a guerrilla camp in Middle East to train them as terrorists as their mother already was. Since Stefan Aust used to be so often at the right spot, we should pay attention when he most recently switched his view to China and has written together with Adrian Geiges the before mentioned biography on Xi Jinping, the most powerful man in the world as the title goes. Although his book is only published in German up to now, you may have heard of this book since it made headlines all over the world most recently. There were two book presentations in Germany with Stefan Aust and Adrian Geiges planned at German universities in cooperation 
with branches of the Chinese state-run Confucius Institute at the end of October. But both dates in Hanover and Duisburg were, were canceled on very short notice, and at least in one of these cases after an intervention from a Chinese consulate. Also, this particular point is worth of discussion maybe, but allow me to raise another thought, another question for our upcoming debate. Yes, China is a rising star in the global world, becoming stronger and maybe also more, more aggressive as it seems to me at least. We all know about the tensions around the South China Sea and Taiwan. We are all worried about the fate of the Uyghurs and not even all the whereabouts of a Chinese tennis player seems to be clear to me, although she had her call with the IOC president, Thomas Bach, last night. Such reckless behavior is a privilege of mighty powers on might think, but is winning strength in politics and economy and meanwhile also on the military terrain enough? Can China win and is she Jinping the most powerful man in the world as long as there, as there is no global desire and longing for a Chinese way of life. There is no, as far as I see, pop culture in the use of the world that would embrace Chinese music, fashion, or must-have accessories, while even anti-Americans all over the world like blue jeans, Coke, Hollywood, the US charts, and the, the iPhone. Maybe Kishore Mahbubani and Stefan Aus, uh, you will discuss this soft power question as we, are go, as we go along. You both are famous for not mincing your words, and therefore I'm expecting an exciting debate. But before my last point, I already mentioned the 25th anniversary of the media program Asia of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, founded in October, November 1996 in Manila, Philippines and relocated in 2002 to wonderful Singapore, the world champion in innovation. From here, we support as our, from our program and train young journalists' talent at the universities of several Asian countries. We, we promote the dialogue between media and politics, and we are engaged for a free, responsive, and ethical press in the region. I am new to the program and to Singapore. I came from Germany with my beautiful wife, Anja, and our daughter, Benediktina, only in August. And before that, I have been a journalist for decades, a journalist who has worked in Europe and in the United States and who has traveled the world, a journalist who loves his profession absolutely, but who suddenly has got the impression that he was walking the same bridges for the second or third or even fourth time. And therefore, when I got exactly one year ago the friendly invitation from Konrad Adenauer Stiftung to go to Singapore and lead this program, me and my family decided very fast that it is time for kind of reinventing ourselves. And so here we are. And I'm here not only to train young students and journalists, but also to learn. Compared to Asia, we as Europeans have, in many points, different ideas of the role of mass media and how to organize them and how to secure the freedom of, of word. But as long as we agree on the principle of the freedom of press and on the respect, respect for human rights, we must accept that fundamentally different 
societies and cultures and circumstances urge different approaches and answers. And on the basis of accepting those differences, we should be able to learn from each other. Having described my leading idea for my work here in Singapore, I'm really eager to cooperate with all of you. Thank you for listening, for listening. thank you for coming. Dear Ambassador Riedel, the floor is yours. Mr. Graf, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your kind invitation and for allowing me to say a few words. And I very much would like to congratulate the media program Asia of the Konrad Adenauer Foundation on its 25th birthday. So you already said everything I wanted to say, but I think nevertheless uh, I should repeat that this program aims to support talented young journalists in the countries of the region, promote dialogue between media and politics, and thus contribute to a free, responsible, ethical press in the region. And today, if I'm right, more than 300 fellows of, at universities in Asian countries have received a grant from the Konrad Adenauer Foundation. You have all contributed to the establishment of an excellent network, so congratulations. And no other event would be better suited to underline such a milestone birthday than this one. We are all concerned with the rise of China and the related issues and effects, not only in Europe, but of course, especially here in Southeast Asia, where the great powers meet. I am convinced that Europe can learn a lot from Singapore and its dealings with China. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why I wanted to come to Singapore as an ambassador. So I'm all the more looking forward to today's discussion. Who would be better suited for this than Stefan Aust, one of the most prominent German journalists, commentator, and media entrepreneur? And please, Mr. Aust, promise us to come to Singapore next year also physically to this fascinating place right in the center of world politics. And Kishore Maubani, one of the keenest and most pointed observers of China here in Singapore. I had already many fruitful discussions with Kishore, but I'm convinced that the following applies to Mr. Aust as well. Ladies and gentlemen, you may not share all of their positions, but you will find it very difficult to refute them. Anyway, I'm curious and very much looking forward to this panel discussion. Thank you very much.
And um, I would now like to invite on stage our distinguished speaker, Professor Kishore Mabubani, and of course, uh, Mr. Stefan Aust, who will be joining us via web link. This evening, um, as you can see, is President Xi Jinping and China's role in the shifting world. Now, for our international audience listening across the world via our live streams, please feel free to post your questions via the pigeonhole link found in the video description. We will address as many of them as we can later during the Q&A segment. Now, our two guests need no introduction, so we'll launch straight into the program proper. We'll first kick off with a short presentation by Stefan, followed by a short presentation by Professor. Then we'll have an exchange of views, followed by a Q&A segment with our audience. Stefan, please. Be there, right with you. But you know the situation of Corona uh, is quite difficult now here and as well as in Singapore. It is a big honor for me to talk to you today, Mr. Kishore Mahbumani. Of course, I have read a lot of your essays and your interviews, and actually I spent half night last night to listen to a speech you held, which I found in the internet. Of course, I have read a lot of your essays and your interviews, including your interviews in the magazine Der Spiegel, of which I had been the editor many years. For me, you are one of the biggest thinkers in Asia, if not the biggest one. Then you very much also the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung of Singapore for bringing us together for this interesting, hopefully interesting conversation. We have come here together because I have written this book, Xi Jinping, this powerful man in the world together with Adrian Geiges, a longtime China correspondent. We have been stunned that such a biography of Xi Jinping hasn't been published in Germany before. Even in the English language, would there, uh, well, there are some books, for example, written by the British Sinologist Carrie Brown, which have Xi Jinping in the title, but which don't tell the story of his life. There's an endless number of books about Barack Obama and Donald Trump, but no one of Xi Jinping. This shows how the West is ignoring the rise of China and Asia. The renowned US magazine, The Atlantic, even made a story about this with the headline, Why are there no biographies of Xi Jinping? And in the recent election campaign in Germany, China and Asia was no topic nearly. So what kind of book we have written on Xi Jinping? Of course, we could not sit down with him and interview him for many hours like usually should be done for such a biography. And actually, I had a long interview years ago with Yang um, for Der Spiegel, and maybe we'll get a call from Peking one of these days to invite us. 
But we collected everything about him that was available. We analyzed his speeches. Fortunately, in socialist countries, it is common to publish nearly everything what the leader says. My Chinese-speaking colleague Adrian researched what had been published in Chinese newspapers before 2012, so before she became the general secretary of the Communist Party. In that time, he sometimes gave interviews to Chinese newspapers telling, for example, how his family suffered during the Cultural Revolution. We interviewed a lot of people who met Xi Jinping. We did not interview Angela Merkel for this. We didn't even do an interview with her for a five-part series which I just made about her time as a chancellor. We don't have the aspiration to reveal secrets about Xi Jinping. What we want to give is a wide, a wide audience in Germany and in the West all the important basic informations on Xi Jinping and nowadays China. Our book is not a book for or against Xi Jinping. We don't make propaganda for the Chinese government, as you could see when they stopped our discussions. But we are also far away from China bashing. We see us as journalists in a traditional sense, gathering, gathering the facts. It shall be up to our readers to judge themselves. This brings me to you, Mr. Kishore Mahbubani, in an uneven position. I'm not a politician, and usually my job is not to tell opinions, but to ask questions. Also today with you, I see myself mainly as an interested listener and as somebody who doesn't mainly want to argue, ask, and to learn. So I'm looking forward. And um, Professor, I see that uh, you have this uh, book um, in front of you. <laughs> so the first question I'm going to ask is, has China won? Over to you. Um. First of all, let me thank Sam Sagra for uh, inviting me to this session and to say, Stefan, I'm not sure whether you can see me. <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> uh, I, I'm looking forward very much uh, to this dialogue with you. And I want to begin, in a sense, by you, you, you tried to explain your uh, perspective of the world and how you try to approach this in a detached objective fashion to try and understand Xi Jinping, to try and understand China. And I would say in that sense, we are similar. Uh, I, like you, I don't speak Chinese. <laughs> and uh, I'm also trying to understand uh, China in a detached, objective fashion. And as you said, you're a child of the Enlightenment. I'm a child of the Enlightenment too. So to apply those values in terms of objectively trying to understand uh, China. And the reason why I wrote this book uh, has China won for, is for a very simple reason, uh, which is that the West is completely misunderstanding China, <laughs> to put it very simply and bluntly. And only because the West has got used to 200 years of domination of world history and the West assumes that, that 19th century and 20th century are the normal condition of the world, 
And what for before that 1800 years was abnormal. <laughs> I see it the other way. I see the previous 800, 1800 years as the normal condition of the world where China and India were the number one, number two economies in the world. The last 200 years have been an aberration. All aberrations come to a natural end. So you're seeing the perfectly the natural return of China and India and the rest of Asia, by the way. And the problem that the West has is that it has a very fixed set of lenses or glasses that it uses to try, to try to understand China. And of course, the Chinese reality will never, ever become like Western reality. And by the way, you know, the West always looks very big. China is just one country. You add up the total population of the West, North America and Europe, you may get maybe 700, 800 million people. China is 1.4 billion people. And so the failure to understand that China must be understood on its own terms is a fundamental mistake. And also it leads to other fundamental misunderstandings. Now I can mention four or five, but let me just mention one as an example. The assumption of the West was that if China succeeded, it could only succeed by becoming a replica of a Western society. I'm not making this up, okay? If you want proof, as you know, one of the most powerful policy makers in the Biden administration today is Kurt Campbell. Go read his essay in Foreign Affairs. And he, as Kurt Campbell says in his magazine, the essay in Foreign Affairs, hey, all of us Americans thought, very simply, we'll open up China economically. After we open up China economically, China will open up politically. China will become a liberal democracy and China and America will live happily ever after. That's a fairy tale. But it's a fairy tale that was believed by serious people. And I can tell you when future historians look back at this Western assumption that China would become like the West, they'd be very puzzled how a young country like the United States with less than one quarter the population of China only 250 years old, this young republic thought it could transform a 4,000-year civilization with four times the population. That was an absurd assumption, but everybody believed it. And what is even more shocking is just the simple failure to understand that after having the oldest continuous civilization in the world, the Chinese have worked out their own political history, their own political traditions, their own political culture. And they know what works for China and what doesn't work for China. And a divided two-party system in their view, I'm not saying it's my view, doesn't work for China. And in the case of China, the history of time, China teaches them that when you have strong leadership, on top, the people benefit. The bottom 50% benefit. And when you're weak, the divided leadership on top, the people suffer. Which is why, incidentally, there's a lot of support for strong leadership in China. And if you want proof, Harvard Kennedy School has come up with a study that shows support for the Chinese Communist Party has gone up from 86% in 2003 
to uh, 93% in 2016. Why? The Chinese have had the best 40 years of socio-economic development in 4,000 years of Chinese history. At a time when the Chinese people feel strong and self-confident, the West is asking, why don't you change and become like us? It's a question that seems perfectly natural to the Western mind. It seems absurd to the Chinese. So these are the sort of fundamental misunderstandings which I try to change uh, in my writings. So that, that the goal at the end of the day is to promote better understanding. And I hope with this dialogue with you, Stefan, we will end up with achieving a better understanding. Well, thank you, Professor. Um, you mentioned the, the idea of strong leadership. And, um, you know, I mean, Stefan obviously has written a book about the most powerful man in the world. And it does seem to be the case with the recent historical resolution, which puts the president on par with era-defining Chinese leaders such as Deng Xiaoping and Mao. What do you make of this development? I mean, what is, what is he setting for China in the years ahead? Stefan? is that was a system yeah. of government that was previously thought control never be as productive as a capitalist democratic rule of law system. As a one-party system that mixes communism and Confucius has put China on top. And I agree with you, historically, this is nothing new. For much of human history, China was the leading world power. It is the greatest comeback in history that we are currently witnessing. There is no discussion of economic policy that does not focus on China's victorious race to catch up, back up by figures from the trade war with the U.S. to the takeover of innovative companies and vast swathes of land in Africa. But in Germany especially, we thought mainly of China as being a communist country. And from our own history, we remember and we have in mind the idea to go to West Berlin and look across the wall and see East Germany and see that this communist system just does not work. And what a lot of people did not understand yet is that China is mainly China. It's ruled by a communist party and its leader, but it's an economy that is very simple to capitalist economy in the West. And they are very successful, and they are even more successful now than the Western states, as you can see uh, in, in different respects. So I think the, the biggest fight we have with China is a fight against ourselves, that our system does not work as good anymore as uh, it used to work after the war. And, and I think we have to understand that. We have to understand that we have to take our positions, but we have to respect the positions of China and the other countries in the world as well. Otherwise, um, where there will be very big conflicts in the near and the, and, and the future. So I think we have to concentrate our own work 
and we have to compare how long it takes to build an airport in Berlin and how it functions and how long they need in China to build it does. Right, and Professor, what do you make of this, you know, the recent developments, this consolidation of power and the argument in some Western countries that you know, it's an anti-democratic move? Or do you see that as a natural progression in, in his thinking about how he wants to um, you know, prevent maybe internal chaos within the country ahead mm -hmm. of the party congress next year? Yeah, well, I would say very simply, in terms of what's going on in China, uh, there are two schools of thought. Uh, one I would call the Anglo-Saxon media school of thought, <laughs> and then I would call the second, I guess, the Chinese school of thought. But just as an aside, by the way, Stefan, I completely agree with a key point you made, that the real fight is the fight inside Western societies. It's how the West adapts and adjusts to China. That's the most critical thing. The fight is not with China. It's competition with China to produce results Correct. that are better than China. And I'm glad you used the airport example because when it comes to building airports, fast trains, roads, I mean, you just you can't compete with China. And in, by the way, and I explained in other areas too. So going back to your question, about the, what, is, what is basically what is Xi Jinping doing with the common prosperity, right? Going after Jack Ma, Alibaba, Tencent, Didi, beating them up. Capitalism is dead in China. <laughs> Guess, and of course, I know some of my American friends. I get WhatsApp messages from my, what, from my American friends. They're celebrating. Hey, you know, we, we let Google, we let Facebook grow and thrive. China is killing its big tech. China, uh, America is going to win, and by the way, it may happen. Huh? It may happen that America will win, and that uh, America will do much better. The Chinese economic growth story is over. Goodbye. End of chapter. That's the Anglo-Saxon media uh, perception of what's happening in China. But I think there is another view, and the other view is that the Chinese have actually carefully studied what are the dysfunctional aspects of the American economic and political system? And they have decided that these dysfunctional aspects of the American economic and political system are going to hold America back, and China is going to kill those dysfunctional elements. And that's why in my book, uh, Has China Won?, I devote an entire chapter to how the United States has functionally become a plutocracy. A plutocracy, just for your, you want a simple definition, democracy is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Plutocracy is the government of the 1%, by the 1%, for the 1%. Not just, I don't just say that Paul Volcker, Martin Wolf, Joseph Stiglitz all describe US as a plutocracy. And that's why the bottom 50% in America haven't seen an improvement in the standard of living for three decades. The Chinese have studied this and said, this is not what we want, which is why it's called common prosperity. Common prosperity means the bottom 50% must also benefit. And that way you get a system that is more viable and also potentially economically more competitive. Now, it's not Kishore Mabubani saying this. Uh, one of the biggest 
experts on China is a gentleman called Li Kai-Fu. He's written a definitive book on artificial intelligence. Uh, he's a major investor in China. You can listen to the Economist, the Economist podcast with Li Kai-Fu, and he'll tell you he's invested in a thousand companies in China. And he said in the past, when you invested in companies in China, when it started succeeding, Alibaba, Tencent, all the big guys would eat them up. They couldn't grow. He says, now I have a thousand companies, they can grow. They will not be eaten up anymore by the big uh, uh, elephants in the room. So therefore, Kaifu is actually predicting a more competitive capitalist system, one that actually ensures that big tech doesn't dominate the game completely. Now, frankly, who will be proven right? We don't know. Let's wait and see 10 years from now. But I can tell you on the basis of China's performance over the past 30 years, it's safer to overestimate what China may accomplish rather than to underestimate. And on that note, um, you know, I mean, China's projected to become the world's largest economy mm. you know, sometime around 2030. Um, obviously, there are fundamental differences between the US and China. But is there room to cooperate? I mean, you know, we've had the recent Bloomberg Forum, you know, various world leaders making positive noises about um, you know, the dangers of decoupling and how collaboration is important. But do you see the US and China being able to cooperate you know, beyond some of the initial agreements you know, that they've come to, such as on climate action? Stefan, please. <coughs> well, we, we have no dissent about the question that Asia is rising and the West is falling down. I also understand the motivations of Xi Jinping. He is afraid China could suffer the same destiny like the Soviet Union or Yugoslavia. That's why he wants strict control, more patriotism, and more studies of Marxist ideology. But don't you think that by this means he will weaken China in the long term because it was reform and opening up what made China strong. Right now, you rather have the feeling that they're building a new Chinese wall. Is um, Corona the only reason for that? Or do you think that they are going back into their own country uh, and opening less than before? Well, uh, I, I completely agree with you, Stefan. <laughs> if indeed, <laughs> Uh, President Xi Jinping is moving away from Deng Xiaoping's pragmatic economic policies and going towards more rigid Soviet Union type Marxist-Leninist policies, then I agree with you that China is going to fail. I don't disagree with the assumption at all. But I can tell you that in a sense one of the biggest difficulties in understanding China is the fact that China is run by the, uh, what do they call it, Communist Party of China. And so you assume that, of course, the number one goal of the Chinese Communist Party is to promote communism, right? But actually, functionally, number one, the Communist Party of China 
unlike the Communist Party or the Soviet Union, doesn't export communism to any country. In fact, over 40 years ago, when Mr. Deng Xiaoping came to Singapore, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew told him, how can we become your friends if you are supporting a communist party that is undermining my political system? For 40 years ago, they switched off support from all the communist parties in Southeast Asia. Now, why do they retain the name communist party? They retain the name communist party because that's the vehicle of legitimacy that they have. The Communist Party, at the end of the day, has delivered the results. It enjoys the support of the people, and therefore, it carries on. But look at the policies of the Communist Party of China. And I can tell you that, you know, I have some Singaporean businessmen friends who actually got to know President Xi Jinping quite well when he was running Fujian province. That's the first province he ran, by the way. And many of these Chinese, Singaporean Chinese businessmen invested in Fujian and dealt directly with President Xi Jinping. And they said that President Xi Jinping was the most pro-investment governor they ever met. And I doubt that the Chinese are going to give up the free market system that has delivered so many goodies uh, for, for China. And if you want to get a sense of the, the mind, to step into the mind of Xi Jinping on this subject, if you can, go and read a speech that he gave in Davos in January 2017. I was in the room, actually, when he gave that speech. And there's one paragraph he says. Huh? He says, why did China succeed? China succeed, succeeded because it plunged into the ocean of globalization and we opened up our economy. He said we struggled to swim, but at the end of the day, after struggling to swim, we became stronger. So today, in terms of believers in free market theory, the policymakers in Beijing believe in the principles of free market theory which is why China is ready to sign a free trade agreement with any country in the world. And that's why China has joined the world's largest free trade agreement, the RCEP. And that's why China has applied to join the CPTPP. Now tell me, how many of you think that United States can join any of these free trade agreements? So if in terms of commitment to free market economic principles, no matter what they say, they may, they may say they belong to the Chinese Communist Party, they have a greater belief in free market economics than Washington, D.C. does. Right. So you've mentioned the commitment but to right free now, market principles. Okay, sorry. Yes. Right now, China has, is closed to the outside world. <coughs> Referring to Corona, how long do you think can this hold, or will this be changing during the next months? Or do you think that the corona wall will last uh, for the next decades? Um, I, I, I don't know when, Stefan, I don't know when they will open up the corona wall. But, uh, as you know, the Chinese economy hasn't closed. And uh, I don't have the data, you can all Google and get the data. China's, despite Trump's trade war, 
uh, United States trade deficit with China has increased. And United States trade deficit with China has increased because there are more Chinese exports going to United States. And by the way, the reason why the port of LA is struggling is because too many Chinese exports are trying to come in. So I don't think China has closed its economy. Mm. It's closed its uh, uh, country to movement of peoples. But I don't think it has going to stop uh, the, the Chinese economy, close the Chinese economy in any way. And I actually predict that the Chinese economy will open up even more. And as you know, recently, in terms of the measures that they have done in terms of giving licenses to Western financial institutions, to Goldman Sachs, to J.P. Morgan Chase, I think all those doors will be open more in China. On the one hand, I, do, I agree to your point that the present rising of COVID cases in Germany and other European countries show the weakness of the West in fighting the pandemic. On the other hand, China's zero COVID strategy brings a lot of harm. There is neither business nor tourist travel between China and the outside world anymore. Supply chains are disrupted and nevertheless zero COVID countries like China, Australia or New Zealand have COVID cases from time to time. Actually, I don't really believe the numbers that are presented by the, the China government. Isn't this an illness, illness which never will disappear and we have to learn to live with it? Did the system, the communist system to control population in the kind of um, way um, one through COVID. I mean, we can see that in European countries as well, that, that the government, you know, puts his hands on the people than it had before. So did COVID help a communist system to control the people? Well, I mean, as you know, uh, Stefan, there are two schools of thought on how to deal with COVID or so. Uh, the Western school of thought is, okay, it's gonna, this pandemic is going to be accepted as an endemic feature of our society. And then there's a Chinese school of thought, which is still trying to go to zero COVID. Singapore, as you know, has joined the Western school of thought. <laughs> and I'm actually happy that Singapore uh, is now opening up because uh, I was finally able to go to the uh, United States last, I spent uh, four weeks uh, in the United States in October because uh, it's opened up, Singapore has opened up and the West has opened up. So I, 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 I prefer the, the, the open school to the Chinese school, but we have to wait and see what the outcome will be. Gentlemen, if I can just circle back to the question and the point you made earlier about the commitment to free market um, principles. Well, there is also another school of thought which says that China might be doing it on its own terms, you know, so that, for example, you know, if you look at this part of the world, um, some would say that there is a trust deficit in China's intentions. Um, what would you say to that? Because clearly there is a certain recognition on the part of the Chinese leadership as well that it has to do um, some of that public you know, image um, uh, updating. You know, I mean, earlier this year, they talked about creating a more lovable and respectable uh, impression of China to the world. And what was your thoughts, Prof? Mm. Okay. Um, 
The interesting question is uh, when you say there's a trust deficit in, in China, uh, I think it's important to identify which countries you have in mind. Certainly there's a trust deficit in China, in Australia, there's a trust deficit in China, in Japan, there's a trust deficit in China, in India, certainly, and that's how they set up the Quad. But if you go to the vast majority of countries in the world, and one, indicator, one leading indicator of this is the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative China has launched, countries are free to join or not to join. And out of 193 member states in the UN, over 130 have joined. So where is the trust deficit if 130 countries want to join the Belt and Road Initiative? And I can tell you, some of you may know this, I had a one-on-one -on -one interview with the, with the President of Indonesia, Stefan, a few weeks ago. Uh, I published an article in Project Syndicate called The Genius of Jokowi. And my conversation with him was printed in the Straits Times, by the way, the transcript. And I asked him a question, where does Indonesia stand on US-China relations? And President Jokowi said to me, it's on record, he says, yes, we have good relations with China and we want to have good relations with America too. And he said, but when the American friends come to see me, I said, please, China is investing in Indonesia. As you know, the Jakarta-Bandung railway is being built by Chinese uh, uh, companies. So he says, why don't you Americans also come and invest in, 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 in China? And, and more telling in terms of when, when COVID-19 began and when Indonesia was looking for vaccines, uh, they got almost zero from the United States. China gave them 120 million. And President Jokowi, by the way, of Indonesia took a Chinese vaccine. So where is the trust deficit? And Stefan, um, your, your thoughts on it? I mean, what's the view from Europe? Yeah, Sorry, muted again. <laughs> you know, we, we, uh, we concentrated on the BioNTech-Pfizer uh, vaccination. And now we can see that it holds only five or six months at least. And the, and the Chinese uh, vaccination is not uh, allowed in Europe. Uh, what do you think about that? How, how is it in Singapore? Which are you concentrating on in Singapore? Sorry? Can't no, he's, you're, you're asking the whether or not the Chinese vaccines are allowed in Singapore? Mm -hmm. Yes, they yes, are. They are. They are. Yeah. Yes, but and does it hold longer than the European one? Does it uh, hold? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, you, you have a choice. <laughs> You have a freedom of choice and you can choose. But the, by the way, the majority of Singaporeans have taken Pfizer uh, vaccine mm. because it came first, was approved first, and so on and so forth. But that's, that's freedom uh, uh, of choice. But anyway, that, as you know, in the, in, the, in the case of vaccines, that's where the good news is in the world. I think the Western countries managed to produce uh, anti-COVID-19 vaccines in record time, you know. And, and that was a positive contribution uh, by the West to the world. But Stefan, I wanted to kind of you know, go back to you know, the, the European you know, view of China. Um, I mean, beyond the COVID vaccines, 
Um, so, for, for example, I mean, the investment, uh, trade and investment relationships, um, the ratification of, you know, the investment agreements, um, there are clearly some, you know, major sticking points that remain. Um, do you see these hurdles being overcome? And how do you see the EU balancing that relationship between the US and China? Do you see it pulling closer to the US over time? Um, actually, I, I wouldn't say that it's a balance. Uh, Germany and Europe, uh, at least the, the, the Western part of Europe, relied on the United States for the last um, half century. And so there is a very, very close connection between us and the Americans that uh, survived the Cold War. So I, I don't think that it would be necessary or good for us to leave the combination, the friendship, the close relations to the United States. But in fact, uh, if you just look on the pure numbers, um, you, you said that already, I mean, all over Europe, Russia and the United States uh, together have less population than China itself. So I think we have to live with the idea that China will become the most powerful, at least economically, the most powerful nation in the world. And uh, I think I heard it from you in one of, one of the interviews, your speeches you held, that the Americans and the Europeans have to live with the fact that China will be the number in the world. Uh, and as long as China is not sending troops to other countries or to islands nearby, um, I think we, we can live it and we should live with it. And we, we should do so much work as we can and as, we, as it was uh, known in Europe and the United States during the last decades after the war. But right now, sometimes I have the feeling we are concentrating more on um, climate or other uh, catastrophes um, um, in, the, in the near of, of future, except and, and do not concentrate as much as what we should do on the development, on our economic system, on our um, university systems, the school and everything, and, and the discipline of working. So I think it's really um, not, not a war, but it's um, uh, um, concurrence. Um, it's competition. And we have to do a lot to keep up with this competition. And at the same time, we have to know that we are relying and dependent, uh, and, and dependent on uh, our relationship to other countries and one of the main countries uh, we are depending on is china by selling our cars or buying computers or whatsoever so it's very it's it's very important uh, that that we get along well with china and i think um and i would like to know what what you think about the change in china itself that um the head of the state and the party can be elected um, until as long as he lives. Does this show something uh, that has been changing in 
China during um, the, the, the last years. And is that dangerous? Okay, before, before I go back you know, into the. Yeah. Uh, before I respond area. to your question about term limits, your last question, if you don't mind, I'm going to put forward an, uh, an alternative approach for mm. Europe in, in this US China uh, contest. Because I actually think, you know, you, you, you said something, by the way, which is unmentionable in the United States of America, right? Stefan just said, China will become the number one economic power in the world. And if you're a betting man, you would bet on China becoming the number one economic power in the world. Simple mathematics, they keep growing at 6-7%, eventually they'll become number one. Doesn't matter whether it's 10 years, 15 years, they'll get there. Now, in the United States of America, if any American politician says, hey, China is going to become number one, let's get ready for it. That politician is dead, finished. And by the way, having spent four weeks in the United States, I'm actually quite shocked at, at the level of at the ferocity of the anti-China sentiment in the US. Because in the US, China is no longer regarded as a competitor. Competitors, you can compete, there are rules, you can get, see who wins. China is regarded as the enemy. And so there's a powerful zero-sum game in, in the United States. So I believe that a better role for Europe to play, now in some ways maybe Europe can reciprocate the generosity that the United States showed towards Europe in the Cold War. United States defended Europe in the Cold War, defended it very well. And it's time now for Europe to reciprocate American generosity by guiding the United States towards a wiser policy towards China which is to accept the reality that you cannot stop China, nor can you transform China. You just got to live with China. That's the reality. And that's what, by the way, most countries in one way or another are doing. They're adjusting to a new, more powerful China that is emerging. And I actually believe it will be in America's national interest to craft a policy towards China that is accepted by the majority of countries in the world rather than a policy towards China that isolates the United States of America in the world, which is what the current policy is. Because the current policy is, you know, you're with China, you're with US or against US, and most countries don't want to choose. That's very clear. The majority of countries in the world don't want to take sides. So the wiser course for the United States to do, therefore, is to work out for a new international consensus that creates a set of rules whereby China can grow, US can grow, and all of us can grow. And frankly, that requires stronger global multilateral frameworks. And Europe, at the end of the day, is a champion of multilateralism. So Europe can take the lead in creating these sorts of global multilateral frameworks that creates a level playing field for US, China, Europe, and the rest of the world. That's what I think Europe should be doing. And by the way, just as an aside, let me also mention, as you may know, I, I also suggest in my book that Europe will be torn between its head and its heart in dealing with China. Your heart is with the United States, of course, that has to remain in the United States. But your head will also tell you that the number one long-term threat to Europe is no longer Russian tanks, it's migration flows. 
And if you're going to have this demographic explosion in Africa, where Africa's population in 1950 was half that of Europe, today Africa is more than double. By 2100, Africa's population will be 10 times the size of Europe. Migration is the challenge. If you're going to deal with migration, the answer is economic development of Africa. And China is your best partner for dealing in terms of economic development of Africa. So it's important for Europeans, therefore, all I'm arguing, going back to your point about the values of the Enlightenment, what I learned about that from the Enlightenment is be very calm, cool, and rational in your analysis. And the United States is no longer calm, cool, and rational in its analysis of China. I think Europeans can, can help the United States by giving calm, cool, rational analysis. Now, going back to your question, let me answer quickly about uh, term limits um, for, for China. I, I can tell you that, as you know, uh, in many countries, uh, you have had leaders that have stayed more than 10 years who did a very good job, like Chancellor Angela Merkel. Indeed, I'm very sorry that she's stepping down, by the way. <laughs> I wish that she could stay on. You so, should, in the case of You think China, we should have a rule like... <laughs> no, no, I mean, you know, in the, case of, in the case of Western democracies, I think Tony Blair stayed more than 10 years. Uh, I mean, United States, you cannot, of course, because of a two-term limit. Uh, but in, the, in, in many Western societies, you can stay on. So in the case of China, I would say don't focus on the term limits. That's frankly irrelevant. The most important question to ask is, is China going to continue to have good governance or bad governance? Okay? That's the critical question. And I think that term limits is not a critical issue. And incidentally, uh, even though Deng Xiaoping was the man who introduced term limits, I want you to know when, the, when Deng Xiaoping was chairman of the Bridge Association of China, he was the most powerful man in China. So don't look at titles. But, <laughs> look at the reality. Yeah, but China was not that important at that time. No, yeah. it was not but that look at the, But look at the reality but, that even if President Xi steps down, he will remain the number one man in China with or without term limits. We didn't talk about one country yet, which is in a certain part, a part of Europe and a part of Asia. Um, which was um, the, one of the two biggest nations in the world. What do you think, uh, what kind of a role does Russia play, does Putin play in this big new game? Actually, you, 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 I think you know Russia better than I do. <laughs> but I'll give you my answer and I want you to please let me know whether you agree or disagree. I want you to know that my book, this uh, Chinese challenge, to American primacy, has China won, has just been published in China. In fact, it appeared in Germany and China at the same time, in October uh, mm -hmm. this year. And the delay in publication in China was due for many reasons. They, they had to cut out several parts of the book, of course, which is normal mm -hmm. in China. But one part they had to cut out was a section on Russia. Because what I said mm -hmm. in, in this book, uh, has China won on Russia, is that Right now, there is a very close friendship between Russia and China, which is true. But in the long run, the country that has the most to worry about China's rise is the country which has the longest border with China and the country with the longest border 
with China is Russia. So I say that if the, if the West is wiser in the way it manages Russia, and, and, and I belong to the Henry Kissinger, Tom Friedman school of thought, which is that the expansion of NATO right up to the uh, inside the Soviet, former Soviet Union is a mistake, and that the West shouldn't have expanded NATO, should have actually tried to bring Russia into the European family rather than cut Russia out. Okay? But that strategic mistake made by the West has been a gift to China. But you can remedy that and turn it backwards. So I would say that frankly, logically speaking, geopolitics, by the way, is a 2,000-year-old game. Geopolitics is a combination of geography and politics. Geography is critical. <laughs> so Russian, the current Russian-Chinese alliance is, I think, unnatural. And therefore, more naturally, the West and Russia will come together at some point in time. I don't know whether you agree or disagree with that. Actually, I, I totally agree. Um, I think there are a lot of um, conflicts with Russia we should not have in a certain way, we are driving them into the arms of the Chinese. And if you look uh, at, at the climate change, which I do not doubt, that means that uh, during the next future, it will be easier to get gas with ships to, and fa much faster to China than to send it um, uh, to the West. Uh, so I think, uh, mainly when we are stopping to, to burn coal, um, we need gas. And so I think it's very important that our relationship to Russia is better than it is in the moment. Otherwise, we'll, they send their gas eastwards instead of westward. And um, you know, if we can sort of turn the lens away from, let's say, the U.S. and the EU and Russia um, towards somewhere closer to home, um, where, where does India lie in all of this? Um, how does it place itself? I mean, clearly it has a missed opportunity in the form of the RCEP. Um, do you see it you know, moving closer towards you know, either mm -hmm. country? Why, why does Stefan go first? Yes. <laughs> I didn't quite get that. And actually, here? you are the expert on India, not me. You know, we, we did enough work <laughs> to try to understand what's happening in China. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I cannot claim to be an expert on India, but I can claim to be Indian. <laughs> So, um, the, India is uh, in a very interesting place in this uh, US-China contest. Until June 2020, India was moving towards a position of trying to be very careful about maintaining good relations with both sides. Then there was an accident in June 2020 uh, several Indian soldiers died in, an, uh, in a clash at the border, and that completely changed Indian public opinion. So Indian public opinion today is very anti-China. And so before the June 2022 incident, the two leaders who had spent more time talking with each other face to face 
were Prime Minister Modi of India and President Xi Jinping of China, and they got along quite well with each other. But after June 2020, that's now uh, 11 plus 6, 17 months, uh, Xi Jinping and Modi have not been able to meet. So the question is whether or not India will completely join the United States side against China, which is possible. But I think it's unlikely because I think it's in India's natural interest, national interest, to try and keep its options open. So, for example, uh, to give you one example of complexity, there is the U.S. Congress has passed legislation that says that any country that buys weapons from Russia, including S-400 missiles, will be subject to sanctions from the United States. India has bought S-400 missiles. So technically, the U.S. government has to impose sanctions on India. So that's an example of how the Indians cannot completely put their uh, eggs in one basket. And if you read the book that Jay Shankar, the foreign minister, wrote, which I reviewed for the South China Morning Post, you will see in that review, I quote sentences from his book where he says, yes, India is a member of the Quad, but he's also a member of the uh, BRICS, which has China. It's also a member of the India, sorry, I forget which comes first, India-China-Russia dialogue, which happens also. So mm -hmm. India, I think, has a foot in many camps. And Stefan, your views? <coughs> well, actually, uh, do you think that the Chinese government uh, cares about what... Um, let's see, the feeling in other countries about the rising power of China is. Are, do, they, do they think we don't care what they think? Or do, do they see that, for instance, politics in um, Hong Kong um, raises the fear of, uh, towards China in Western countries? So that you can, do you think they, they, they do not care about what uh, the public opinion in other countries is? Well, um, my, my response to that, I'm glad you mentioned Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a very mm. typical example of how the misunderstanding arises uh, between mm -hmm. the West and China and the United States and China. Now, I want to go back to my point about the 193 countries in the world. Mm. And of the countries that are concerned about Hong Kong, I guarantee you almost no African country is interested in Hong Kong, right? I do not know of, uh, maybe except for Japan, uh, any other Asian country that speaks out on Hong Kong. Uh, in fact, uh, you mentioned India. Uh, in this book, Has China Won? I tell a story of how, I think in 1961 or 62, President John F. Kennedy of United States and Prime Minister Harold Macmillan of United Kingdom wrote a letter to the Anglophile Prime Minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, and said, hey, we understand you're going to invade Goa. Don't invade Goa, please. Just let Portugal run Goa. I think within a week or two of receiving the letter, Nehru invaded Goa, took back Goa, and said, Goa belongs to India, please. 
So in the same way as Nehru thinks that Goa belongs to India, Chinese think that Go Hong Kong belongs to China. And as far as I know, apart from the Western countries, in no other, uh, out of the 193 countries in the world, take out the Western countries, the remaining countries don't say anything about Hong Kong. And also, this is another important statistic, only 12% of the world's population lives in the West. 88% lives outside the West. So in terms of your point about does China listen to opinions, I think the Chinese pay attention to the 88% figure. And, and I think that's what is missing in the Anglo-Saxon media, an incapacity to understand that 88%, the thinking of the 88%. Politics in Hong Kong. Do you understand that some people in the West have the feeling that this could happen to Taiwan as well? Is there a real danger? Uh, well, the the danger the danger of Taiwan, to put it very bluntly, is the danger of a nuclear war. Because. We have had peace in the, across the Taiwan Straits for 50 years, primarily because the United States reached an understanding with China called the One China Policy. It maintained official ties with Beijing, unofficial ties with Taiwan. That has kept the peace, right, for over 40, 50 years. Now, if you don't change that, there'll be no war on Taiwan. But if the United States pushes for independence of Taiwan, which is, by the way, what some people in the Trump administration tried to do, there they were crossing a red line. And you know, one, one other thing I've done is to launch a MOOC, M-O-O-C, MOOC course on US-China relations, explaining China's century of humiliation. Independence of Taiwan will remind China of the century of humiliation as you know, where Taiwan was separated and seized, first by the Japanese in 1895 in the Sino-Japanese War. So therefore, China cannot accept the independence of Taiwan because China cannot accept the independence of Taiwan. I guarantee you 100% China will declare war on Taiwan. And if China invades Taiwan, a or something war. like that. Will that be the moment of war as well? Well, I think or that's will what the I think. States say we can't do anything. I, I think that even I can assure you that people in the United States also do not have the answer uh, to that question. I think the Biden administration has been very good on one point. The Biden administration has consistently said since it came into office that it, it, it believes in the one China policy. And you know, even recently when Kamala Harris came to Singapore and uh, uh, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense came to Singapore, he both, he, they all reiterated the one China policy. So for those of us who don't want to die, by the way, in a nuclear war, we also die. Eh? <laughs> don't think that you're safe. <laughs> uh, when you get a nuclear winter, it affects all of us uh, all over the world. Mm -hmm. So we, therefore, have a vested interest in preventing a war over Taiwan. 
and we therefore have a vested interest in speaking out and retaining the one China policy. Don't change it. Then you avoid the war. And on that rather Don't you think that because of the strong connections, economic connections between China and the Western world, it could help to prevent a war because everybody knows before some tanks roll, we'll have an economic crisis in the world as big as it has ever been. Well, I think, you know, the, you know, I spoke about the enlightenment and being a rational actor. China is in many ways the most rational actor on the world stage today. I mean, China calculates its national interests very, very carefully and works it out and tries to, over time, it doesn't get results. It has setbacks all the time. It has had setbacks with India, setbacks with Australia, setbacks with Japan. But overall, decade by decade, they keep moving forward. So they are a rational actor on all issues except one. On Taiwan, China is not a rational actor. China is an emotional actor. And China will pay a massive economic and military price to secure Taiwan. And if it's 10 years of recession in China, China will accept it. Mm -hmm. So now we've actually covered the EU, we've covered Russia, we've covered India, Taiwan. Now we bring the circle back to Southeast Asia. What does the future hold for this region? I mean, we saw this morning the ASEAN-China Special Summit, um, where that relationship you know, will be upgraded to a comprehensive strategic partnership. Um, but at the same time, there have also been concerns. I mean, you mentioned the BRI earlier, um, but also ESG concerns over the BRI. Um, concerns over possible you know, influence operations in the region. Um, so various things which kind of are at the back of you know, Southeast Asians' minds you know, when they deal with China. Um, what's your recommendation on the way forward? Yeah, I think you should ask Stefan more yeah. questions too. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether his book covers yeah, Southeast Asia or not. But uh, let me, okay, anyway, yeah. you know, Southeast Asia clearly is in the front line in this U.S.-China contest. Let's be very clear, okay? So how Southeast Asia goes is going to be a key uh, bellwether indicator of where the world is going. And I think the consensus in Southeast Asia, of course, some countries in Southeast Asia are closer to China, like Laos and Cambodia. Some countries in Southeast Asia are closer to the United States, like Vietnam, right? But I would say almost all the 10 agree that they want to have good ties with China and they want to have good ties with the United States. Nobody wants to be forced to choose one or the other. And the preference of the, United, of the Southeast Asian countries, therefore, is to see a stronger presence of the US in this region. But not, 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 not a stronger US presence that says, keep China out but actually engages uh, Southeast Asia economically. That's why I quoted President Jokowi earlier, telling the Americans, 
China is investing in Indonesia. Why don't you please invest uh, in Indonesia too? But you see, at the end of the day, the priority of the Southeast Asian countries, all 10 of us, is economic development. And you look at the data, okay, this is the most important piece of data you should know on the triangle between US, China, Southeast Asia. In the year 2000, United States trade with Southeast Asia was $135 billion. China's trade was $40 billion, right? Less than one-third in 2000, China's trade with Southeast Asia. 20 years later, 2020, while the United States is busy fighting wars in the Middle East, wasting $5 trillion in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, everywhere, right? China's trade with Saudi, uh, US trade with Southeast Asia goes from 135 billion to 300 billion, increase of two and a half times. China's trade with Southeast Asia goes from 40 billion to 650 billion. So China's trade with Southeast Asia, which was one third that of the United States in the year 2000, is now more than double. And by 2030, by the way, the gap will be much bigger. So the game, the big geopolitical game in Southeast Asia is economic. And if the United States wants to play the economic game, the United States should join, rejoin the CPTPP. That's the answer. But if the United States doesn't have an economic strategy in the region, it is going to lose the game to China. So that's why everybody is telling the United States, come back with an economic game plan. Stefan, do you think that Southeast Asia will be forced to choose? Does that mean that the West, like the United States and the European Union, are not caring enough about simple economic reasons for their politics? That the Americans still want to play the policeman of the world and, and, and the Germans want to rescue the world for climate change or whatsoever, why, while the, the Chinese have some kind of rational politics uh, taking care of their own interests? Well, I, I would say I would make a distinction between the United States and the European Union, you know, because. Mm -hmm. Because the United States sees itself engaged in a major geopolitical contest with China. It is it has started already. The US China geopolitical contest has started. There is no EU China geopolitical contest so far. <laughs> I think the EU is still trying its best to work with the United States, work with uh, China. So but I would say the European Union should also step up its uh, presence in Southeast Asia. I, do you have the data on what is the Germany's trade with Southeast Asia? I don't have it, sorry. No. Maybe nobody you, does. No, no. <coughs> it's probably stronger with China than with the rest of Southeast Asia, definitely. Mm. Right, so no, if we can kind of round up you know, the discussion today, I think just want to ask both of you to look forward into the next five to 10 years do you see a world which is in an economic system and a political system which is increasingly bifurcated? Or do you see one where the major powers can actually work together? Um, Stefan, your, your take on this. 
Well, actually, I think the most important thing is that every country, we as well as the Chinese or the Americans, um, look on their own economic interests. And I think it's much easier if somebody takes care of his own interests and the neighbors and their partners know what their own interest is, then it's much easier to get to some kind of solution. Uh, instead, especially we in Germany have the tendency always to think about uh, the interests of other countries. Um, so sometimes uh, I'm happy when, when the politician, the British or whatsoever is talking about their own interest. It's much easier to deal with that than uh, always talk about the good things and what we have to save and what we have to do and what we have to do uh, to save the rest of the world. So I think uh, because the economic and the, the uh, system in all these countries is very similar. I mean, this is some kind of capitalist that we have, uh, capitalism that we have, that the Americans have, and that the Chinese have as well. And, and those are more or less the same rules. And the moment as you, as you, it's our interest, and because of this is our interest, you should see that this is our interest, and so that we can do some kind of a contract, or uh, they're all businessmen. I think uh, when we look a little bit back into the business itself, it could help um, as far as the relations uh, are. It's much better to deal with somebody who says clearly what he wants than to deal with somebody who's always uh, uh, keeping his own interest in the dark as well as possible. So I think um, when, we, when we look at the economic situation, it's much better uh, to have communication with the countries on that area than on, on um, a lot of other uh, areas. Just, to, you know, if somebody uh, makes a rational politics and says what his interest is, it's much better to deal with that. Well, I, I, I want to say that the 2020s, number one, will be a very dangerous decade. No question whatsoever. I mean, the United States will step up its efforts to prevent China from becoming number one. Because there's a, you know, I've, having, having written a book on U.S.-China relations, having just spent some time in the United States, there is an iron logic of history, which is 2,000 years old, that no number one power gives up its number one position gracefully. It will fight to retain it. And in the United States, there's a rock-solid consensus that the United States must remain number one. So if Stefan said what he said today, get ready for China becoming number one, you'll be killed in America. You can't say that, right? So that's the dangerous part. But also, you know, the, if, if you, you know, the Chinese word for crisis is a combination of danger and opportunity. There's also an opportunity. And here I want to emphasize that there's an opportunity for Europe to play a leadership role in the world in the next 10 years. And frankly, what we need is to, for the rest of the world, the 6 billion people who don't live in the United States, who don't live in China, we six billion people have got to come out and create a common set of rules, multilateral rules, 
that hopefully will ensure that even as the US-China contest gains momentum, that they stick to some rules and not violate those rules. And that's the role of the rest of the world. And in the rest of the world, the third strongest actor on the world stage is still the European Union and the European countries. So I hope my goal, one reason why I was happy to participate in this forum is to send a message to Europe. You should step up mm -hmm. and provide more leadership to this world to prevent this dangerous decade becoming too dangerous. And Stefan, any final thoughts? Well, actually, I, I'm surprised that I completely agree with what you are saying. I mean, uh, this is really a dangerous decade. It's no problem, uh, no, no doubt about that. And, and I hope that we'll get a government in Germany that can play not only a part in Germany, but in, in uh, world politics as well not to become stronger than we are, but just to keep uh, this um, small but very interesting position we have. So that means that we have to continue a rational politic. Uh, and this is the only way to compete with the others. Right. And on that constructive and optimistic note, um, we'd like to open it to the floor for questions and answers. Um, if you have a question for our speakers, please raise your hand and someone will come around with a microphone. A reminder to state your name and your organization before posing the question. Mr. Crow. Yeah. I don't want to, to dominate uh, the, the discussion since I had the chance to say some words in the beginning, but since no other showed up. Um, I agree with most parts of that what you have said, Mr. Mahbubani and uh, Stefan Aus was not far from your position. The one question I would have uh, and put on you, Mr. Mahbubani, you said uh, and you, you diagnosed that most countries, for example in Asia, uh, looking on the uh, Road and Belt Initiative and on the vaccination of the Indonesian president, don't have any mistrust towards China. But my question would be, is it, um, uh, is it justified to trust in China? So my question would be, if you have, for example, deeper economic trade relations, Germany, for example, um, would there be the situation, or could there be the situation where you could get blackmailed by, uh, by uh, China since the, 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 the deepness of the trade relation could bring, for example, Germany in a weak position? That would be my, uh, my question. And uh, I agree what you have said in regard to, to the United States. Um, they, they don't like the idea that China could be uh, could become number one, and they, they battle this idea by words up to now. But on the other hand, um, as you mentioned uh, some minutes ago, the Biden administration always has said we stay, we keep on to the to the one China policy, and even the Trump administration never has um, crossed out this uh, one China policy. Therefore. Um, where do you see any action, any, any military um, 
preparations or so from the, the United States that they really would fight these ideas that this idea that China could become uh, um, number one. I, I don't see this development up to now, and uh, you're right, uh, I would agree, if um, uh, the United States would take any, any steps to, to battle China becoming number one, that could be a very dangerous situation, but up to now I personally don't see this development. Maybe you can uh, give us some explanation how this could develop and, and um, happen in your view. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, first question on trust. Second question on how China is blocking, uh, how United States is blocking China's rights. But I hope, by the way, I hope you all have questions for Stefan too. Uh, please, it's a real privilege to have Stefan no, out. You're the expert. No, no, he's, 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 it's a real privilege and pleasure to have him. So let's, let's, let's engage him and get uh, his wisdom to, well, I'll, 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 I'll answer your question first. On the question of trust, I want to emphasize that as someone who practiced diplomacy for 33 years, I'm just an old-fashioned realist, okay? And I believe that countries have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, they only have interests. And most countries in the world will do business with China, whether or not they trust or distrust China is irrelevant. The question is whether or not you, will, you can do business with China. And to give you a concrete example, right, take Brazil, for example, right? Uh, in the year 2000, it took Brazil one year to export uh, $1 billion to China. Now it takes Brazil 60 hours to export $1 billion to China. So whether they trust China or distrust China, they will do business with China. Let's be very clear. This is what most countries in the world. So the trust, therefore, is, is a, I would say, is not a factor in, in international relations uh, among most countries uh, in the world. And you, know, you mentioned, by the way, a case of China bullying. I want to say that the idea of a benevolent superpower is an oxymoron. All great powers will assert their interests, and all great powers will bully small states, whether it's Russia, United States, China, it doesn't matter. They will all bully small states, and that's a reality. And if you want a concrete example, Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel laureate in his book, has given a classic example when Ethiopia was very, very poor, I think in the 60s or 70s, it repaid a loan early to American banks because the interest rate was too high. The American banks complained to the U.S. Treasury, the U.S. Treasury called the World Bank. The World Bank pulled loans from one of the poorest countries in the world, Ethiopia, because Ethiopia paid off American banks too early. So that's a simple example of all great powers behave in a certain way, and we have to accept that. That's a reality. Now, on your second point about how the United States is stopping China, I can tell you that there is a powerful, deep consensus in Washington, D.C., that China has to be stopped. Now, first phase was the trade war. You've seen that already. And what's interesting is that Biden, as you know, doesn't agree with Trump on anything, hasn't been able to lift a single tariff on China. That's one, one instrument they're using. Number two, technology. There's a massive technology war has begun. 
And therefore, the United States will see which are the areas in which it can maintain an edge in technology and ensure that China never catches up. And China will try its hardest to catch up. So the big technology race has begun, right? Then number three, making sure that countries are pushed or nudged towards moving to the United States side. You've seen that with Australia, you've seen that with Japan, and that's what's going to be a, a, a very hard push. So you've got to be ready. And you'll be asked suddenly to make a choice. A simple example is Huawei, right? Many countries wanted to buy Huawei because it's cheaper. <laughs> Guess what? You buy Huawei, you get some pressure. I can tell you in da my last Davos meeting in January 2020, and I was talking to a room like this to a group of CEOs, okay? And my the, the person next to me, I cannot mention his name, was a very distinguished British citizen, very distinguished. And I asked him the question about Huawei. He says, Kishore, the UK has got some of the best intelligence agencies in the world. Right? It's true. He says, we have planted our people in Huawei. We have scrubbed everything. Huawei is not a threat to us. I said, hang on a second. Washington DC will call you. Mm -hmm. And this British gentleman went like this. Kishore, who do you think you know, we are? Right? Of course, UK is going to stand independent. January 2020. July 2020, UK capitulated. That's the war. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. The, the I think economic sanctions never worked. Economic sanctions never worked. I remember uh, a gallery of pictures in the United States newspaper showing the pictures of all the presidents since Eisenhower. And there was one line, before my presidential time is run out, Fidel Castro won't rule Cuba anymore. And that, that was a small island. It Who does not that? work. Who said that? Sorry, uh, I, that was some kind of a joke, you know. It was one, one um, sentence from all the presidents. Before my time is over, Fidel Castro won't be the ruler of Cuba anymore and was a gallery of U.S. presidents since Eisenhower. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. Sanctions worked. don't work. I agree. I agree with you, Stefan. Yeah, it doesn't work at all. No, we have to keep up with the development of other countries, but not try to stop them. That's impossible. Before I take another question from the floor, um, I'll read out one question from the pigeonhole here, um, which is to Stefan. Um, apologies, I haven't read your book. I look forward to its English version. Um, and, you know, um, can you share some of the key findings that contributed to who you know, she is and his ruling style today. Well, well, he was he was a, one of the princelings, as they call it. You know, he he 
comes from a, from a family uh, that was important in Chinese and the Communist Party politics. Uh, and he was put in jail and he, he uh, went through a lot of uh, different periods. And then he decided not uh, to get into the opposition, but to make a career inside the party. And this is very interesting how his career started and how it went and what he learned out of the time during the Cultural Revolution. So I think there are, there are a lot of details and um, uh, uh, stories uh, of the, the different steps of his life. But in the end, which was interesting for us to put it all together, you can see that he is changing the role of the party and the leader of the, of the country uh, to get into a position which is comparable to Mao's position. And I'm not that, not sure, I don't know how you, how you see it, whether this will make China more successful. Uh, because I think in, in every country, in every system, it, it's important to be prepared for a change in the leadership role. So whenever um, a president or a chancellor or any kind of leader of a state is too long in his position, it's getting dangerous for him and for the system he is standing for. Because most of the time, <clears throat> the leadership does not get better after eight or 10 or 12 years. And then they really uh, spend most of their time to take care to stay. In. And it, it's normally, it's not only the head of a state, but it's a whole group of people being around. Um, that who don't who do not change so i think it's it's good for a system even for a communist system if there is some rules how to change the leading power and i think this is um what makes me a little bit skeptical about what's going on in china right now he's certainly uh, the most powerful leader china has had since mao and because the country is more stable and, and, and much bigger and much richer and, and much more dominant in the world, his position is so strong. But I think for a system, it's not good to concentrate too much on one person on the top. All right, thank you. Um, and we'll return to the floor. I think um, someone at the back uh, raised his hand just now. Um, over there. Oh, okay. You're, you're hanging on to the mic. Okay. I, I yeah, already please. Yeah. have the mic. Thank yeah. you very much. Mr. Kishore, thank you very much. You a little bit stole my thunder uh, with regard to my question. Uh, maybe I, I, I may uh, yeah. remove the mask, then I'm better uh, to understand. So my question was, um, what do you think, uh, who, uh, which system or which country has to pay the bigger price if it comes to a confrontation between uh, over Taiwan, is it China or is it, I call it the West, including the European Union and uh, the United States, um, in an um, economical sense? Um, and you very frankly said um, China is going to be uh, not rational uh, when it comes to the Taiwan question. So um, this ignited the next question for me. Does this mean China is lost? Uh, 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 Taiwan is lost? Uh, that, that it's clear 
um, China with, will take over Taiwan sooner or later, um, maybe in the year of the tiger, who knows, which would be uh, more sooner. Uh, or do you think um, the West, and in particular the, Uni uh, the United States, would to have um, stand up for Taiwan, as it holds, I think it's 25% of the semiconductor industry uh, worldwide, so, uh, and they very much depend on these industries. Do they have to um, take this part over and, yes, um, step into a confrontation? And what does it mean for Europe, in particular for Germany, who has very, um, very strong ties to uh, economical ties to China? The, the economic of China and, and Germany are much intertwined. So uh, what, what is your perspective and what, what do you think about this? Thank you. Well, I think clearly one, one thing we all share in common is to avoid a war on Taiwan. And we should do whatever we can to avoid a war on Taiwan because, and by the way, you know, the way the nuclear war will happen is not as though they'll press the button immediately, you know. I'll tell you how it works, okay? China announces a blockade of Taiwan, America sends a ship, the ship has a collision with the Chinese ship, China, American ship sinks, 150 sailors die, and then America has to react because 150 American sailors have died, they fire one missile as a warning, China cannot do nothing, China has to respond, and so it's through a process of escalation that it happens, right? And my sense is that the Biden administration actually has worked through some of these scenarios. And therefore, you notice that it's going back to the one China policy, one China policy, uh, one China policy. And I think, you know, I also think that we should do our best to preserve peace in Taiwan. And fortunately, there is a very easy solution. The easy solution is we've had 50 years of peace. How? By creating, maintaining all kinds of ambiguities without seeking clarity. Keep these ambiguities. Don't change anything. Just leave everything today as it is, right? And you pretend that, you know, uh, we have a one-China policy. You maintain your unofficial ties with Taiwan, which is what the United States is doing. Don't change it. Don't change anything. But the minute you change, you trigger a cascade of events mm -hmm. that you cannot control. And therefore, don't change the status quo. And that, that frankly, is the most sensible thing for all of us to do. So, for example, I'll give you a concrete example. The uh, Biden administration says it's in favor of one China policy, right? Says that. It should get Chai Ing-wen to say, we are in favor of one China policy too. Then there'll be no war, right? No reason for war. So, but if you try to change it, then you create almost by definition, an inevitable collision. And for all of us will suffer, by the way. I want to emphasize this, all of us, especially the people of Taiwan. So if we care for the people of Taiwan, 
let's not change the status quo. Can we have another question, please? Yep, yeah, over there. Um, Thank you. Um, Professor, the, um, you said a lot of wonderful things about China and um, surely they're doing a lot of things right. But, but how do you reconcile the fact that to make it work for China, it seems to be based on a high level of repression, um, uh, environmental destruction, censorship, a certain ideological stubbornness, um, I mean, we've spoken about Hong Kong, the Uyghurs. How do, you, how do you reconcile that? And why do you think that's, I mean, do you think that's tolerable? Mm. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question uh, because your question captured very well the Anglo-Saxon media's perception of China. And I would suggest to you very bluntly there is a distorted perspective of reality. Let's take the first word you use, repression. If the Communist Party of China only relied on repression to stay in power, it would not create the most dynamic economy in the world. Right? It is by far the most dynamic economy in the world. It has delivered the fastest growing economy for 30 years. And it has done this by educating the Chinese people to a level and extent that the Chinese people have never been educated ever before. And you say is repression. You obviously are taking the old Cold War mindset. Uh, I was in Moscow in 1976, and I saw repression in Moscow. And I, when I was in Moscow, the Soviet citizens were not allowed to travel outside the Soviet Union. That's repression. In the year 2019, 139 million Chinese left China freely. Guess what? Zero defectors. 139 million Chinese, right? That's twice the population of the UK. <laughs> Went back to China. So, all your description, when you say environmental degradation, the United China's climate change policies are far more responsible than those of the United States, which has not once, but twice, withdrawn from global environmental protocols. Kyoto Protocol, the Bush administration left eight years. Paris Accords, Trump administration left four years. And you know what? The reason why we're having climate change today is not because of new flows of greenhouse gas emissions from China and India. It's because of what the Western countries have put in the atmosphere since the Western Industrial Revolution. 
get the data, the single largest contributor, cumulatively, right, is number one, United States, number two, Europe, number three, China, right? And the, the West wants China to pay an economic price for the current flows, but the West doesn't want to pay an economic price for what it put in the atmosphere. You want to deprive the Indians of electricity when the United States could just, by the way, if the United States could impose a dollar a gallon tax, that would save the world. Cut down gasoline consumption, raise money for investment in green technology. Simple solutions. And by contrast, the largest reforestation program in the world is carried out by China. It has already reforested an area the size of Belgium or bigger, right? So all your descriptions capture the natural distortions of China that you get in the Anglo-Saxon media, which violate the rules of the Enlightenment, which say that you must be rational, calm, and objective especially in understanding your adversary. And if the Chinese were as stupid and as incompetent as you describe them to be, don't worry about them. But I can assure you, you are now dealing with a far more intelligent and rational actor that doesn't fit any of the Anglo-Saxon categories that you applied to them. My, for, please forgive my bluntness. <laughs> now you're putting words into my mouth. I would like to hear from Stefan Aust whether he agrees with the view that China is not a repressive system. Well, I wouldn't agree with this. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's a communist party. It's not a democracy. Um, but this is the way it is. And I don't think that we should try to change the world um, where we cannot change it. And. Uh, when, when I see how they control the population, um, that helps if you are, uh, have a, a, a panami, uh, when, when, when you have um, uh, a, a pandemic, uh, it, it helps to control the people. At the same time, um, the experiment helps to the government to control the population. Uh, this is not a democratic system, which I would wish we would have but on the other hand you can see uh, that this system helped millions of people get out of hunger and and to make a personal career to go to schools to study and to 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 build up um, a very uh, important when not if not the most important economy uh, in the world so uh, what what we tried in the book to try to to show what's going on there, how the situation is, but not putting ourselves in a position uh, to tell them how they uh, should live and how they could should change it. Uh, for my personal view, I'm far more in favor of Western democratic society. But what we always thought is that economic power and economic growth goes together with, with a, uh, a democratic system as we have it, at least we had it since the war, since the end of the war. Um, we have to see that, that, that a communist system like in China can be very successful and we have to deal with it whether we like it or not. 
And can we take the next question from um, this gentleman here in the blue shirt? Oh, okay. Um, oh, uh, she came first? Okay. Um, first of all, you mentioned earlier that you are setting your hopes on Europe, and I would say maybe you might want to prepare yourself for some disappointments, but this is only a personal remark. Um, I have a follow-up question uh, from the earlier speaker. Um, you mentioned that we should be more objective when it comes to China and um, that uh, and see also their achievements. But my question would be, if you know, my, I, the Chinese population sees those achievements and appreciates them, why do they still need censorship then? That would be, they shouldn't need it if, if uh, all the, you know, the whole of the population sees those achievements. That's a contradiction to me. And uh, second of all, um, could you elaborate on Taiwan? Why do you think um, China would accept the status quo? Why do you think China would say, well, this is fine, we can live with it as long as everybody plays along? Or do you th don't you think that China at some point will just say, we want Taiwan back and we want it our way and we just don't accept it like it is at the moment? Okay. Um, you know, the, the thing about your question on censorship uh, is that it tries to sort of say, more or less, excuse me, huh? <laughs> that in the West we have no censorship, that's white. China, which has censorship, is black, okay? And I would say that in most societies are shades of gray you have no formal censorship in Western societies. Believe me, you have informal censorship, right? And in the United States today, by the way, it goes down to political correctness. And even in the greatest universities, right, in the US today, and I'm, this I'm told by graduates of these great universities, I just was there, that the political culture is pushing towards political correctness and there's no formal censorship but there's so many things you just cannot say anymore. And if you want an ex example of this, read the Financial Times this, this weekend. Uh, lunch with FTs with a Yale professor, Amy Chua. She spoke freely. See what happened to her. That's also censorship. Okay? So... There are different kinds of censorship. There are the blatant kind of censorship you can see and the not so blatant kind. So the only point I want to tell you about Chinese society is this, which is I think you should, this is the one reality that almost nobody can understand, which is that most of the Chinese people have never been happier. You know, it's amazing. You have to live there to see it. And in my book, I cite uh, one of uh, uh, America's greatest strategic thinkers, George Kennan. And he says at the end of the day, the outcome of the contest between the United States and Soviet Union, the old Cold War, would depend on which society enjoys greater spiritual vitality. Where are the people happier, especially the bottom 50%? And today, this is a reality that you just 
find it difficult to accept, but it is real. The bottom 50% in America are about to vote Trump back in, in 2024. Trump is coming back. Right? The danger of Trump coming back is so real. And I can tell you that shows you what a difficult, divided, dysfunctional society United States has become that they can vote Trump back. That's unhappiness surfacing. In China, by contrast, the people till today are still amazed at how much their lives have improved and are happy with the situation that they have down there. Which is why, to be honest, with apologies to you, I reacted very strongly to the word repression because the Chinese people actually understand and appreciate how much they have advanced. And the, and the Chinese actually now, the people actually, and this is something that I, I met someone who was here a few days ago, who speaks Chinese fluently, has been there recently. And he said, in China, there used to be a natural awe and respect for the West, which is good. But that awe and respect for the West is diminishing as they see what is happening in Western societies, especially the United States, and they see what's happening in China. So I want you all to understand that don't use black and white categories to understand China at the West. Understand the strengths of the West, the weaknesses of the West, understand the strengths of China, weaknesses of China, and then make a comparison. Don't do black and white uh, comparisons. And on, on Taiwan, basically, just my simple answer is, if you don't shake the status quo, we can keep peace. No, but the Chinese are not going to go out and launch a military uh, war. Because again, I, I discussed this in my book, the Chinese believe that the best way to win a war is without fighting. If you have to fight, it means you're not a good, you're not a good general. With um, time for three more questions, I think I the think next Gerard one. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I'd like to ask this question to both uh, Kishore as well as. Uh, no, no, ask Stefan. Yeah, Stefan as well, because uh, Ste I, I'd like to hear both your views on this this uh, point. Actually, it's a point that uh, the lady earlier just mentioned just now. Um, this issue of Taiwan and whether or not the, either side would shift the consensus or shift the status quo. I think you, Kishaw, you feel that, that uh, it's the, the risk is that the West would be the one or America would be the one that would uh, move the status quo. But how are you so sure that China won't do the same thing? Because as far as I understand, but from my little understanding of China, that, that there is, is unfinished business for many generations since, since 1949 that the, Taiwan has not been reunited with the mainland. And how are you so sure that China is not going to, in its effort to project its progress and project its, the great revival of the Chinese nation, from what they call it, that they would seek to retake the, the mainland whether by force or, or other means, and that, could trigger, out, that tri could trigger the war. And I'm asking this as a Singaporean politician because I'm concerned about the peace and security of our region. Of our region. 
So I'd like to hear both your views on that. Yeah, Stefan. Well, actually, you know, during the time before the fall of the wall, um, every German politician um, on certain days when we were, they were holding, holding speeches said, in, in the end, like Tato um, Zinek uh, said, Kartaginam Essedilendam, they said Germany has to be reunited. And in a certain way, the politicians in China said the same about Taiwan uh, going back into, into mainland China. The difference now with Xi Jinping is that he said that this has to happen during his time of life or his time being uh, the head of the government. So in a certain way, it's good that um, he stopped uh, the uh, limit for being uh, the president and, the, and the, the chief of the party. So we have a little bit more time and he is not so under pressure to do it within the next four or five years. But I think uh, the risk is pretty, pretty big. Um, and um, the risk that the whole thing is getting out of control is pretty big too. And the position of the Americans to say uh, we are defending uh, the security and, and independence of Taiwan, not me uh, saying it in, in clear words, but to give the feeling that they wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate if China takes over Taiwan, is the only way to stop China uh, really to take it over. So I think what you said is really correct. Um, don't touch it. But the danger of a country that's feeling more and more uh, strong uh, to take it over, at least when we see uh, what's happening in, in Hong Kong, is pretty big. Well, the, I mean, it is, it is possible, certainly. I mean, it's possible you may wake up tomorrow morning and we hear that President Xi announces that he's going to invade Taiwan. It's possible, certainly. But if, in my assessment of how they behave is correct, they do very careful, comprehensive calculations. And one of the biggest questions they ask is, who, on whose side is time on, right? And the Chinese are shrewd enough students of geopolitics to know that the world will treat China this way when it is number two. By 2030, China becomes number one. The world will treat China very differently. There's a huge amount of deference that number one gets that number two doesn't get, okay? So if that's coming your way, right? And if you watch this, the fruit is gonna ripen and fall, why take it now? What's the rush? But if you sense that someone is trying to change the facts on the ground and recognize Taiwanese independence, right? Then they will act. So that, that's how I think. But they are very careful, rational actors, uh, which is why actually the, what the Trump administration was trying to do, uh, especially in the last years. I, you know, incidentally, there is... Um, you know, I, I listened to lots of podcasts, okay? I think there was a podcast on Seneca 
which describe that in the last nine months of the Trump administration, the world went through a very dangerous phase because until then, even though Trump took actions against China, he, he was still quite restrained. Trump actually, to be fair to him, didn't like uh, geopolitical quarrels and so on and so forth. He didn't want to be bothered with those. But after COVID-19 broke out, when Trump realized that COVID-19 was killing his chances for re-election, he became very angry towards China. And you know, he began to talk about China virus and so on and so forth. So all the restraint that Trump personally was applying on the anti-China hawks disappeared in the last nine months of the Trump administration. And therefore, Pompeo, Pence, and Potinga literally ran riot, you know. And that's how the speech that uh, uh, Pompeo gave in the uh, Nixon Library was incredibly inflammatory, you know, against China, because no one stopped it. Now, when things like that begin to happen, then you get dangerous. So the good news is that the Biden administration has switched that off and says, we'll be careful on China and we'll be careful on Taiwan. So if, that, if the Chinese have the assurance, why should they act? Well, leading on from that question, um, we have one in the pigeonhole which uh, asks... Uh, ask Stefan. <laughs> yes, it's, it's directed at both of you. Um, how do you think countries can strike a balance between not to completely misunderstand China and have to completely play by China's rules? Some of you might take issue with the phrasing, but please share your views. Actually, we cannot change China. We don't have to, we, we shouldn't believe that we can change it. We have to live it with it. And the only way to compete with China is to stay strong yourself, to see that you, that you have a booming economy, that you uh, have a system that works, that you have a democratic system that is an example for the rest of the world where pe people can see, I would like to live the way they are living as we had it during the last decades. But, but if the West is not concentrating on their own work, on, on what to do to develop, to get people studying, to have a free democracy, a free press, uh, to have the possibility to travel, uh, to let people inside the country, other people uh, have to stay out. As long as we are not taking care of our own country, we cannot compete. And so it does not help if we look into other countries and say we, we don't want to be like them. Uh, we do not have to be like them. We don't have to uh, want, want a communist system in Germany. But nevertheless, we need an economy that, uh, economy that, that works. Uh, and, and we need to build our railway stations and, and airports and, 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 and the whole uh, infrastructure at least as good as they can do it. But if we see on and we see that a lot of, lot of things are made better there, uh, we should rather concentrate on doing it better ourselves instead of giving other people um, uh, advice to do it. I, I'm going to get Stefan into a lot of trouble. I agree with every word you said. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Well, that's good. So we can move on to the last question. Uh, who has the honors of taking the, the last one? There, yeah. okay. My name is Christian Echle. I'm the director of the Political Dialogue Asia of Konrad Adenauer Foundation, and I'm very glad that I'm still able to pose this question because, Professor Mabubani, you basically said on a platform of the media program of Konrad Adenauer Foundation that uh, censorship helps to keep the population happy which is quite a statement uh, for the media program of Konrad Adenauer Foundation. And I would argue against that. I don't believe that. I believe that um, censorship is maybe in order for a majority of the people, but um, if you think about the minorities, if you think about the Uyghurs, if you think about the Me Too activists, they suffer from censorship. That's the one side. The other side is that censorship also prevents a very important function of the media, which is to um, help accountability, to make sure that the government is accountable. So my question to you is, if you say the censorship is fine, where does accountability come from for the Chinese government, for Xi Jinping and his government? Uh, because at least I believe that this is a very important mechanism in a country, that there is accountability for the government. Maybe you don't think that's true, uh, but I'm really interested in your perspective on that. You know, one, one thing I love about the English language is its precision. <laughs> so when I said that censorship has not prevented the Chinese people from becoming happy, it doesn't mean that censorship has made the Chinese people happy. These are two very different statements, okay? It is true that there is censorship in China. It's also true that there's a lot of happiness in China. That's, that's the reality that I'm describing. Now, I would prefer like you to live in a society without censorship, certainly. But that's a choice you want, that's a choice I want. Let the Chinese people choose what they want. And when you ask for accountability, I suggest you look at 4,000 years of Chinese history. When the emperor fails, right? He loses the mandate of heaven. And in one way or another, the Chinese people have overthrown bad emperors for 4,000 years, right? They've suffered from time to time, which is true. And if you look at the cycles of Chinese civilization, all I'm saying is, you want to understand China, why don't you look at Chinese history, okay? Now, the Chinese go through cycles, right? When they have bad years, they have 200 bad years. Guess what? The Chinese have just had almost 200 bad years. Now, the Chinese are beginning 200 good years, of which 40 years have just happened. And whether or not there's censorship or no censorship, another 160 good years are coming. That's the reality. I'm not saying I approve of it. I'm saying censorship is not going to make a difference, right? Because the Chinese have evolved their own social and political contract. You may not like it. I may not like it. But they seem to like it. And I want to emphasize a key point. It's a bit arrogant for Westerners to tell the Chinese people, we know better than you do what is good for you. 
And in this book, I cite an American ambassador, Chas Freeman, he says, we in the West don't understand that China suffers a ratio of people to arable land which is among the tightest in the world. If the United States had the same ratio of people to arable land as China does, United States wouldn't have 330 million people. United States would have 4 billion people. And Chas Freeman says, if we in America, if we had 4 billion people, we would accept far more controls and restrictions than we do today because when you're crowded, living together, you accept a social contract which is much tighter and more disciplined than Americans will accept. So we're, I'm not suggesting we should become like the Chinese. I agree with Stefan, right? We should look after ourselves. We should create our own societies. China is not asking us to transform ourselves. All that China is saying is our society is good for ourselves. You keep your society and we live and work with each other. I think that's a perfectly reasonable statement. Well, that, that, the, that the population agrees with censorship and dictatorship in countries that are not democracies, we know from our German history quite as well. And sometimes I think that the censorship of a, of a, of a government like that, which is not a democratic government, um, is not very successful either. Um, you can see it with a little example when they when they stopped uh, our uh, two uh, discussions presenting our book. Um, it went through all the newspapers and it did not stop the book. Exactly the, diff the, the opposite happened. So I'm not sure that this control of the population in the end, on, on the long run, will be very good for the country because when people are are able to go to other countries when they are able to read other newspapers. They want to have some kind of a discussion culture as well. And I think for a system, even if it's a one-party system, it's not bad when the discussions take part uh, uh, in, in the newspapers, in the magazines, uh, on TV, except having only one uh, view of the situation, which is the government view. I think for every country and the development of a, of a country, even if it's not a democracy, it would be good uh, to open it a little bit up. And we have the feeling now that uh, under Xi Jinping, uh, China is not opening anymore, but closing down. And I think this is not good for the world and it's not good for China, but I'm not in a position uh, to have a position what's good for China. On that note, um, whether China is opening up or closing down, uh, we clearly have very different views expressed today. But uh, it's now time to declare that you know, we've reached the end of the session. We've run out of time. So uh, once again, Stefan, thank you for joining us for your time. Thank you. Yeah. And, well, thank you. Um, if you ever come to Germany, come over. <laughs> yeah, yes. I'm coming. <laughs> and uh, please, me please join us uh, in Singapore when you can. Yeah. Um, okay, and uh, Prof, you can just stay on stage. Um, I'd like to invite uh, uh, Ansika to come on stage to present Prof with a token of appreciation, please. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. housekeeping update which is for future event updates of the media program Asia please be sure to follow their social media handles please enjoy your dinner thank you